Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast produced by Movement is Life. My name is Ramon Jimenez. I'm an orthopedic surgeon who's been involved in mentoring and reducing musculoskeletal healthcare disparities for our marginalized Hispanic population. I also serve on the steering committee of Movement is Life. We hope you are doing well. I'm sure you're experiencing at least some of the aspects of life that are being disrupted by this pandemic, perhaps many. There is great concern that these disruptions may further exacerbate health disparities by making it more difficult to access care. In fact, many people are simply avoiding visiting their doctor or getting their flu shots and the like. Hopefully we can find ways to go around these obstacles or avoid them. Another area where we see significant disruption is with our schools. We will focus in this mini series on Hispanic education and specifically healthcare workforce diversity. For young people, studying online has become the new normal. It is a worrying scenario, especially for families with least resources, because studying online requires a good internet connection and a good computer. Not everyone has that, and this could further hamper the increase in diversity we are seeking and those professions which require the highest qualifications. Isn't it logical that we need education equity to achieve health equity? So how do we go about achieving both? This is something we're going to explore in several podcasts with a focus on Hispanic education. Our guest today is Ed Alvarez. He is the president of Latino Education Advancement Foundation, which is based in the East San Jose School District where there is a mix of public, charter, and private schools. You might think that all the education systems in Silicon Valley are awash with money and opportunity. We're going to talk about how that simply is not the case. A little about Ed's background. During his law practice tenure, Ed's experience included representation of the San Francisco 49ers during the heydays and the five Super Bowls. He also had consulting roles with the city of San Jose and the county of Santa Clara relating to public-private partnerships. Alvarez was recognized in 2019 as a recipient of the Silicon Valley Business Journal's first ever Latino Leadership Award. He served a seven-year term on the Board of Education of the Eastside Union High School District and a seven-year term on the Board of Trustees of Santa Clara University. Alvarez was also the founding member and trustee of Crystal Ray Jesuit High School. He also served as the chairman of the board and president of the National Hispanic University in San Jose and the Foundation for Hispanic Education. Ed, welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast. We appreciate all the great work you've been doing, and we're looking forward to discussing how all this intersects with the goal of increasing healthcare workforce diversity and why that's so important. Well, thank you for that introduction, Ramon. I appreciate it. One project that I'm most proud of in terms of my past experience is the partnership we created with the University of Santa Clara to assume the teacher credential program of the National Hispanic University. There are clearly not enough teachers of color in our classrooms. In order to accomplish the objective to increase the number of teachers of color in our classrooms, the university now offers a 50% scholarship to students that commit to teach in low-income schools. So apropos to our today's topic, 
wouldn't it be great if we had teachers of color in every one of our science classrooms, for example? Why are more students not pursuing careers in health sciences and what are the obstacles? Well, first of all, I think there's a lack of information at the high school level about what a career in health sciences is and what is required to pursue such a career. Schools and health providers need to do a better job of communicating the opportunities in the field of health. Our schools generally lack career education pathway programs, which, for example, in the state of Texas, have proven to be effective to motivate students to pursue careers. This would be true in health. You have to remember that students of color generally come into high schools having experienced years of low expectations and with a lack of proficiency in math and English. So that's obstacle number one. And we need to introduce science courses in a way that encourages them to pursue these courses and, of course, improve the math results. Also, parent outreach and support is necessary. We need to expose parents of the possibilities in the health field. You know, uh, I've had the opportunity to speak to some of these students, and I find that they are intimidated just by the number of years it takes to be like an orthopedic surgeon uh, or so. I had particular students ask me that question. Do you believe that's true? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Again, I think that uh, there's a lot of research that, that indicates that Low-income students coming and families that they come from aren't really self-advocates. When they see challenges to how much longer it's going to take for them to achieve any career goal, it's pretty daunting. Sure. You know, besides uh, socioeconomic reasons, I've also found that uh, uh, parents can be a positive enforcer or motivator, and they also can be a negative in their needs uh, for the student to generate income to contribute to the family pot? Well, I don't think there's any question that, uh, especially in today's environment, and especially with respect to low-income students who uh, are typically going through school with some type of employment or another, and and college in particular, uh, that that is a, a factor. It's particularly true obviously, with respect to the boys. And, and the boys often use, you know, the employment as, as kind of an excuse uh, not to proceed ahead. And I think we have to overcome that as well. I know what I've tried to tell um, these students when they ask me about being an orthopedic surgeon. I try to say, take it step by step. You know, and you don't have to be an orthopedic surgeon. You can stop short of that if you, and in fact, using that word was not good saying stop short. But, you know, encouraging to say that they, there are other fields within, uh, uh, be it a medical assistant, be it an x-ray technician, be it uh, physical therapy. Uh, I encountered a, a dental hygienist the other day uh, who was from Oaxaca, which is a region in, in Eastern Mexico. And her parents are from there, and she came here when she was about 10, but she ended up becoming a dental hygienist, which is, I didn't know for sure, uh, she informed me that it takes, you can do it after an associate's degree, or you can get a bachelor's degree. It goes back to um, the basic lack of information about uh, what a career in health uh, is all about and what the options are available at that career, in, in that career. And, uh, and so 
you know, with more information in early years, I think that uh, that students will uh, understand better that there are options uh, available to them, and there, what is there, a thousand or more different possibilities, and and so uh, yeah, I think there need more needs to be done to to inform them of those possibilities. Right, and we'll probably talk about this more uh, uh, later. But uh, I think role models in the different areas uh, might also uh, be a great factor for them. Uh, so let me ask you another question. Why is it imperative? Why do you see it imperative that we get more students directed towards healthcare jobs? Well, I think that uh, it, it stems from the fact that 56% of the population in California is Hispanic. You probably know uh, better than I, having been in the health system itself, that the need for bilingual workers uh, is, is, is pretty clear. You know, we have all the data in terms of the large number of English learners there are in, in, in our schools and the fact that uh, uh, a majority of low-income students graduate not being proficient in English. Um, and, and are classified as long-term English learners. Well, given that fact, it seems pretty clear that we need bilingual workers. And in the case today of the pandemic, it's even more important than, than it would otherwise be. So I think it's pretty clear that, uh, that we need to get more students into the system. Well, I think that your point, the point that you make about the 56% in California anyway, and you know that's a right, the Hispanic population is rising. And there's a concept in healthcare that of racial concordance. And there are statistics to show that patients will gravitate more to racial concordant healthcare providers. In other words, uh, doctors or healthcare providers that are of the same race or, or ethnicity that they are. Interpreters are good, staff is good if it's bilingual, but if they see a doctor or a healthcare provider of some sort, be it a physician's assistant, uh, or walk into an office that, that is a uh, high percentage are, of the medical assistants are bilingual, and bicultural, they feel more comfortable and will open up and communicate with their doctor. And so what you said is absolutely true that because of the increase in Hispanic population, which is gonna is gonna reach, they figure 28% of the whole nation will be Hispanic in about 10, 12 years. The comparable is in our classrooms that all of the research indicates that uh, students of color perform better uh, when there's a teacher of color in the classroom. That's why I made the comment about science. In Silicon Valley itself, with the demand for tech jobs being so high, uh, is there opportunity? Are there jobs available in healthcare for these young, young people? Well, actually, it's the other way around. The demand for jobs in tech is not as great in the Bay Area as, demand, as the demand for healthcare jobs. Two years ago, there were 34,000 jobs in healthcare available, and only 7,000 were filled. And that gap is going to increase unless more students are guided into health care pathways. And again, the pandemic is making matters worse as students lag behind educationally or opt out of college. 
And so the pathways to enter the healthcare field are being, I think, dramatically impacted right now on account of the pandemic. Is this because uh, there's lack of practical opportunities? In other words, uh, uh, I think we all realize that the healthcare jobs um, require uh, hands-on clinical exposure to patients, et cetera. Is, is there a lack of that or, or are there plenty of opportunities available for them? They're just not people entering the field. I think that, uh, you know, the it, it's twofold. Uh, first of all, there's little exposure uh, at the high school level. So when students graduate from high school, uh, expressing an interest in this field for whatever reason, maybe it's because of programs uh, such as uh, Movement for Life is presented in the classroom or Kaiser Permanente's programs in our classrooms, uh, they become interested in the field, but then they're left with, uh, you know, where to go from there. And, uh, and, and I think that's where the focus has to be paid because I think that uh, they're, start, they're starting late in that process of filling these jobs. The answer, I think, is the jobs are there uh, the demand is there, but the pipeline is not yet anywhere near full. Exactly. And um, from your point of view, I know I'm going to be uh, we're going to be having a a podcast and some questions with uh, Dr. Segura, who is the CEO of the high schools in which you're affiliated with. And so specifically, how can healthcare providers such as hospitals help increase the number of students who want to pursue a health Career. Well, first of all, let me let me cite some facts. In Santa Clara County, for example, and we may not be unique in this regard, there are 20 hospitals operating in the county, and the county health department has a 400 million dollar budget and employs nearly 2,000 persons. An example of of what's experienced in the field today, in just one small example, is the demand for bilingual clinical psychologists. That demand is so high that that those psychologists are generally not available at the high school level. And the county is having pr- trouble hiring them because uh, they're competing with, uh, with the tech corporations who are starting to provide health services. Well, I don't think hospitals are addressing the issue of increasing healthcare workforce. Kaiser Permanente, for example, provides 65% of the health services in the county. Uh, The County of Santa Clara Health Department operates uh, the largest hospital chain in the county. So we've got two large players in, in, in this arena that need to invest in the schools and the community. They need to adopt the model being developed by the high tech companies, uh, which provide scholarships and pathway certificates uh, for to fill their employment needs. Unfortunately, I think the hospitals and government uh, are still looking at an investment in healthcare as more philanthropy as opposed to a necessity uh, like the tech companies do. So I think they need they need to invest and uh, and um, that isn't happening. Uh, and like anything else, it's probably going to take a lot of advocacy uh, to bring that to the attention that we've got 30,000 jobs in healthcare available that aren't being filled. So I think they can do more, uh, but I think they're going to have to be pushed to do more. Do you think that uh, 
uh, healthcare providers can uh, allow uh, students to perhaps come in and do quotes an externship or where they shadow uh, the provider, not necessarily have a job, but just a learning exposure opportunity. I know that the Crystal Ray Jesuit model uh, in Boston and Chicago and in San Jose, which you've been part of, uh, they partner with certain uh, you with banks and with uh, attorneys' offices and and hospitals too, and, and they try to get them jobs there. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the opportunity for uh, exposure. There, there. I don't think there's any question about it. The whole concept of internship. Kaiser has an intern program, but the number of students that are that are participating in that intern program are uh, less than a dozen. And of course, uh, they're highly competitive. Kaiser, um, I think, would increase their intern program if there were uh, funding available uh, to pay the interns. And I think that's possible, too, because the state of California has a uh, uh, strong workforce program uh, and t- in career technical education, which actually provides to fund internships. Uh, the what's missing is that nobody's brought that together. Nobody nobody has uh, gone and put the program together and then said to the hospital, uh, "How many more interns can you handle?" And of course, there's thirty hospitals, twenty hospitals in the county. So uh, I think really, in one sense, that's the most immediate pathway that's the most immediate uh, bang for the buck so to speak is to uh, ex- expand and develop the internships and I think that can be done with the county health department as well which is you know a, such a large provider so do you think the problem is also that it requires long-term thinking uh, but we live in the short-term world especially business well, I, I have to tell you that uh, uh, until I explored this a little bit, I didn't realize uh, that, again, and I hate to keep referring to Kaiser, but they're providing two-thirds of the health care. And so uh, the issue there is that Kaiser operates you know, in a model that has physicians on one side and the corporation on the other side. And so if you go to the corporation, and say, this is what we'd like to see happen, they've got to go to the doctor corporate entity to really make it work. And, and I've just seen that, that that is an obstacle. And uh, it's also an obstacle in terms of funding uh, because the, the, the revenues that are produced from this system are really split between the doctors on one side and, and, and the corporation on the other side. So it's, it's complex. Uh, but I think, I think, you know, with, uh, with advocacy, you can make a change. You know, I'm uh, from this area and I trained in San Francisco and I was affiliated with Kaiser. Um, and so I know that system pretty well. And the permanent medical group is the, med- is the doctor group if you would, as opposed to Kaiser Foundation. Do you think, uh, just move on to another question, um, what do you feel the role of parents is in guiding students into healthcare careers? Clearly the role of parents is vitally important, but we need to change the perception 
that careers in healthcare are limited to becoming a doctor or registered nurse. And that needs to start with the parents so that they understand the system uh, a little better and, and how complex the system is. You know, I always use the example of, uh, of uh, nutrition and becoming a nutritionist. And, and I don't think that, that uh, people immediately recognize that as part, of, as part of the healthcare system as such. There's extensive research supporting the fact that parent involvement is critical to supporting student career choices. What's missing is a, is, is a directed program or directed programs providing parents with the needed background information on career possibilities. For example, there's a uh, national nonprofit organization, Alexienza, and they've done uh, a study on the impact of uh, career pathways improving academic results for students of color. The same can be said in the field of health. Uh, you, 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 can, you can take the same approach. And remembering that uh, a lot of these programs that, that actually do exist are populated by uh, not students of color, but other students. Who, who actually rush to get into these programs. And I'm talking about career pathway programs in health. And, and those are students who come from families where the parents are college educated and the parent can support that career choice. It can provide some, some uh, background information. Uh, here we're talking about students who are the first themselves to attend college. So I think it's important to, to provide parents uh, with much more information than they now have on the opportunities for their children to enter this field. Right. I, I came across some statistics the other day on the three zip codes around East San Jose, and I was surprised to learn that the combined income of some, of, if there's two parents working, 80,000 in one, 110,000 in another, and 140,000 uh, or 150,000 in, in another. But I, I think that Silicon Valley, Santa Clara Valley, where our, where the schools are located, is is hamstrung by the cost of living, for sure. And and so I think uh, one of the things I I was asked directly when I gave a uh, kind of a career day, Doctor, how much money do you make a year? It was <laughs> the question was asked to me by one of the students, and I said. Uh, I do very well, and and I'm comfortable, and uh, but and so I didn't really. I was a little bit nebulous in the answer, but it it made me think. Your your uh, responses made me think that are parents and students told that as an X-ray technician you can make eighty thousand a year, as a, uh, a nurse you can make. 90 to 100,000 a year, depending on, I mean, is there a listing of that? Uh, are they told that? That's a, that's a great point. I mean, clearly that, that's part of what people are talking about now as they, uh, as they try to engage in, in this particular field. And that is uh, uh, students need to understand what the income possibilities are. And that directly relates to how they will finance their education. And so um, if, you're, if you're looking at a job that pays 80,000, um, then it's no different, in, for example, in the trades. In the trades, average salaries are around 80,000. 
But when you go in the trades, you immediately go into an apprenticeship program. And so uh, you, you begin earning that early on. In, in, in pursuing a, a career in, as a, a medical technician or whatever that earns 80000 then that has to be related to what is it going to cost to get there. And I think that parents and students would be surprised to learn that it's pretty short term and it's not that expensive. Um, at least not in the community college. Right. I think programs of student loan forgiveness or or reduction of debt or what have you uh, would also be uh, good enticers or good motivators for them to enter the field. Because in becoming an orthopedic surgeon, I was not, I did not make any money until eight years after college because it was belief at that time was that you just work you learn and you come out with this huge debt that that's really a a turnoff for a lot of a lot of young people another question is since most high schools do not offer health science career pathway programs what options are available for students who do wish to pursue such a career yeah uh, clearly as we say the the uh, the options at the high school level are are limited um, so the reality is there's really really only two viable options. Uh, one is the community college, and the other is the, um, the menu of programs that are offered by for-profit uh, schools, and um, primarily focusing in on certificates. There's a cost associated with both, but clearly the best bang for the buck is at the community college, especially with uh, remote learning becoming more prevalent. Uh, an ambitious student can not only gain information, but can actually uh, enter into these into these programs. If, if you look at the, the 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 course offerings at community college, um, they cover a significant number of possibilities. Um, if you look at the for-profit uh, courses, they cover uh, an even greater number of possibilities. Uh, they just have the ability to to uh, to address you know all the different levels. The problem with the for profits is that uh, you and you you just mentioned it is uh, is the debt uh, that these programs are not cheap. You have to go into debt, and uh, and there's more than one example. In fact, uh, the state of California is looking at. Uh, expanding their career technical education because they're concerned about the number of students who are dropping out of these for-profit certificate courses um, with debt. Uh, so you know they haven't completed the course. Now they've got they they borrowed to get through the first six months of it or whatever. Uh, so I really think that uh, the community colleges can do a better job than they're doing now in providing students with, uh, with the career option opportunities and the different pathways that exist. And uh, I know that recently, for example, Cal State uh, Monterey entered into a partnership with the community college and with the state to um, provide scholarships uh, for physician's assistance. And so that's a, a specific attempt uh, to try to, uh, to bring more low-income students into this, into this career. I can tell you that for medical school, 
And for residency, it's a, it's a long time. But uh, if you join the armed forces and you commit to them year for year, you come out with not only a career, I mean, say it's uh, six years, they'll pay for everything and uh, you just commit to them a six year commitment, but you are, then when you come out, you're already there 13 years and then at 20 years you can retire uh, from the armed forces, but you come out with no debt. If something analogous to that could be made at a lower level, if you would, or a shortened level for a two-year program or uh, for a dental hygienist, uh, a two-year program for a radiation techni technician uh, or something more sophisticated like that that takes two years, then I think that that might be an avenue. I think that is uh, absolutely correct. Uh, for example, Foothill College, which uh, uh, is in the... Uh, affluent areas of, of, of our county uh, offers a program in radiology. Uh, and, and again, it's a community college. Of course, I'm high on community colleges. So directing students into those programs uh, at, at schools that offer a specific uh, area of, uh, of training, I think is, is just part of the, the whole process that has to take place. I, I, uh, I think I had a conversation just recently with the University of Santa Clara, who, as a private college, is looking to increase their enrollment with low-income students. And what came out of that conversation is that that because it's so expensive to uh, to finance a four-year uh, private university education, that what Santa Clara is uh, studying is a model that would, uh, it's called the Arupe College model, that would uh, be basically a two-year community college, low-cost uh, education with a transfer into uh, the four-year program as a junior. So basically, uh, it's cut the cost for the student uh, by two years. And it's, it's cut the cost for the university because uh, they can offer twice as many scholarships in a two-year mode than they can in a four-year mode. So I, I think it's that kind of creativity that's got to take place um, and, and uh, with, you know, a focus, with the focus being to increase the number of students that enter into the health field in one form or another. You know, that's exciting. And uh, uh, I had heard about that Arupi program and, and the way you just described it, it just uh, is very exciting if, if, that, if it can come to fruition for, and keep going and growing. I know you run across students and stuff at your schools. And so if you encounter a student from a low-income family, how do you approach them about the feasibility well, I think you, you know, you touched on it a minute ago about the step-by-step. -step. I think that's a great point. Uh, and I think that uh, there's, you know, there's uh, a recognition that a, those careers obviously require four-year degrees. And so uh, there's that recognition. And, and the obstacles, of course, are cost on the one side. And, and, and again, I will continue to 
say, a two-year transfer is a way to cut costs. And the other is impacted programs. And here's where I think, and, and this is particularly true in nursing. I'm not as familiar with, with uh, the medical schools uh, as such, but, but in nursing, I, I can repeat to you example after example of students uh, that I have spoken to. Uh, in fact, I have a granddaughter who's uh, been through the two-year preliminary part of this and now is having to go to Oregon uh, to get her nursing certificate. Uh, and, uh, and I know you're familiar with that as well. Uh, so these programs are impacted. And it's just really interesting how all this wraps around to how it affects our kids. Um, and when I say all this, I'm referring specifically to a conversation I had with San Jose State within the last two weeks about Proposition 16 and, and the reality that students of color uh, aren't getting any preference in any aspect of, of uh, the programs they offer. And since all of the programs are impacted, I take teaching, for example, that's an impacted program. And San Jose State uh, has not figured out a way in which they can uh, increase the number of low-income students into their teaching program. And, and that's, you know, it's kind of like totally surprising when they cited Proposition 16 to me and said, you know, if it passes, we might be able to do more about this. And, uh, well, of course, it didn't pass, uh, affirmative action. Uh, yet Harvard and, and, and some of the Ivy League schools that have been sued on this point have actually uh, been successful in uh, increasing the number of students of color. And so I don't know exactly how it is in, uh, in the medical schools, uh, but, I, but I do know that when, if everybody wants to be a doctor, then how does the low-income kid get in there? It's uh, get into those schools, and and I know that's I know that's true in nursing. So I just think that it's uh, it goes back to your one step at a time. So my first step to all of these students is go to community college for two years. Uh, make sure you're there for only two years. Uh, I have an intern that works for me right now, who uh, is a public health mate. Actually, I have two interns. They're both majors in public health. And one of them went um, two years to Evergreen Valley College and, and now is, excuse me, is at the uh, University of California in public, as a public health major. The other went to San Jose State for two years and is now at uh, the University of Santa Clara. Uh, San Jose State majoring in public health, uh, but uh, was attracted to the program at Santa Clara being much more robust, and they had a scholarship for low-income kids. So now he's there. So it's it's almost a case-by-case basis, but uh, but I'm not sure there's any ready answer to, you know, how you can direct them uh, in in the case of of a physician or a certified nurse. Great. You know, before we sum up, I I like you to 
for our listeners who are not all from California for sure, could you uh, give give me the quick and dirty or give us the quick and dirty of Proposition 16? Uh, some years ago now, I, almost 30 years ago, uh, legislation uh, was passed in California that would prohibit a school, higher education, uh, school of higher education, uh, to um, to discriminate in favor of students of color. This was legislation uh, was brought in by Governor Pete Wilson, um, and uh, it's been existing for thirty years. So for thirty years, schools have had to kind of gerrymander around how they could admit more students of color when there were an equal number of students, other students wanted admission. So Proposition 16 uh, proposed to repeal that law and to make it permissible for students, for schools using uh, certain criteria to admit students of color based on the fact that they were students of color. And, uh, And that proposition was defeated and uh, uh, because again, there are there are segments of the population that are not Hispanic or or African American, who uh, in particular attend the UC schools in California, which are considered some of the best worldwide. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the competition is intense. This proposition was intended to uh, to change that so that. Uh, there could be a certain number of students that would be admitted, uh, equally qualified, but would be admitted uh, uh, over other students who were equally qualified. That's what Proposition 16 was all about. It's not over yet, and hopefully it'll come back. So, Ed, our time is up, but I know uh, we could have discussed this more and more, and I hope we can talk about it in a future episode, and we'll plan on it. Uh, So thank you. Uh, for your time, your input, and your cogent uh, ideas. And thank you for the opportunity. It's been a great experience for me. And I also would like to thank our listeners for joining us today. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on Spotify so you won't miss the next episode in this miniseries. It will feature another Hispanic leader, Dr. Sherry Segura, who is CEO of the Foundation for Hispanic Education. Stay safe, be well, be smart, and it's goodbye from San Jose.